This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Chronic Pain and Addiction that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Over one million lives have been lost during the, due to overdoses since 1999. And drug overdose has been an epidemic in the United States since 2000. And 11. With that in mind, federal and state laws have changed in recent years to combat this problem. At the federal level, the DEA has issued new guidance for prescribers to complete eight hours of training on the treatment and management of patients with opioid or other substance use disorders. States and local governments have instituted prescription drug monitoring programs and created local prescribing regulations for controlled substances. These changes have increased awareness of opioid prescribing and helped to curb opioid prescriptions. Today, uh, the un however, unfortunately, the underlying problem of opioid prescriptions still remains. Millions of Americans suffer from chronic pain or pain lasting longer than three months. A 2023 National Institute of Health study estimates that 21% of adults have chronic pain. That's more than diabetes, depression, or high blood pressure. Chronic pain can be very debilitating. In this study, up to 8% of Americans have chronic pain that limits life or work on most days. So how do we treat pain while mitigating the risk of addiction? For this topic, I'm really excited to have back on the program one of Ohio State University's addiction medicine experts. I'm pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health, Dr. Trent Hall. Trent has served as the clinical lead for inpatient addiction medicine consult services at Ohio State University East Hospital and is a clinician researcher with expertise on the intersection of chronic pain and addiction. Trent, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you so much for having me today. Well, Trent, how common is it for us to see substance use disorder in patients with chronic pain? Well, um, as we'll discuss today, these problems are commonly co-occurring. And unfortunately, because they are so commonly co-occurring, people can really become trapped in between pain and addiction and experience poorer outcomes for both. Okay, thanks. Well, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, including multiple other webcasts that you can use to satisfy the new DEA requirements to complete your eight hours of CME on substance use disorder topics. The audio-only version of our programs are also available by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about the program, please send them to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Trent? Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us today to talk about pain and addiction. Today, we really have three objectives. First, we're going to introduce some definitions of pain and addiction. And then we'll also talk about this complex bidirectional relationship between these two clinical entities. And we'll also talk about the basics of evaluation and management for this complex um, relationship between pain and addiction. So we'll start with a definition of addiction that is provided by the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And as we can see here, addiction really is not as simple as maybe many people might have thought in, in previous eras. It used to be that many people considered addiction to be a moral failing or, or some kind of a personality issue. We now have a much broader, more detailed, accurate scientific conception of addiction that involves complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. And we know that people who are, are experiencing this health problem, they often engage in behaviors that can feel out of control to them and that they feel trapped in doing even after they've become aware that it's harmful to them in some way. The good news is is that prevention efforts and treatment approaches for addiction are generally as successful as those for other chronic health conditions which you're currently helping your patients with every day. So there's something that we can do about this together. And pain is something um, you know, as common as addiction is, pain is something that is universal, right? So we all experience pain at some point in our lives. And so it may seem silly even to say, well, what is a, a scientific or clinical definition of pain? But I think that it's important to talk about what is pain or what do we mean by pain before we dive in today. And I think that something that's very interesting and important to me as a researcher and as a clinician is that it is increasingly becoming appreciated that there are really overlapping um, biological and psychosocial considerations to the definition of pain, the definition of addiction, and by increasing our understanding of the complex interplay here, we can better serve our patients and we can go on to do better science. So what is pain? The American, or excuse me, the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Uh, 
And so several important things to point out on this slide is that the leading body for the study of pain in the world conceives of pain as inclusive of an emotional experience. And so that's, there's something there that's important for our understanding of addiction and pain and how they might overlap. Um, two is that it says that it's an experience that's associated with actual or potential tissue damage, right? So it's possible based on this definition, and I would say actually very common in clinical practice, for people to experience physical pain that may not be associated with actual tissue damage. And as, as clinicians, um, we, we should not be dismissive of that experience. It's actually critical that we lean into that when we're providing evidence-based and person-centered care for both pain and addiction, and especially when they co-occur. So the International Association for the Study of Pain, they go on to qualify their definition of pain with several subpoints, and those are listed on this slide. So they tell us that pain is always a personal experience that is influenced to varying degrees by biological, psychological, and social factors, and that through our life experiences, we learn the concept of pain. So stopping there for a moment before we talk about that last bullet, I, I'm thinking that, that after we've seen the preceding slide about our definition of pain, there should be some, um, some bells going off already about the overlap between pain and addiction, right? As a biopsychosocial condition, addiction and pain overlap in terms of their biology, in terms of psychological factors at play, uh, including social factors, right? And our, our life experiences. So we'll talk about it in subsequent slides. We'll really develop how there is overlap in the neurobiology of addiction as a brain disease and pain amplification or chronification in the central nervous system. But there are also really important uh, social factors and, and life experiences that we don't develop quite as much in, in this presentation. So one thing that we know is that early life adversity or, or childhood trauma is actually a risk factor for the development of chronic pain and addiction. So our adverse childhood experiences are associated with the development of lots of health conditions. But that's that's an overlap here that's, that's important to consider. Finally, I think the most important thing on this slide, and later I'll be asked what is the key takeaway of this presentation, and I, it comes right back to this final bullet on the slide. A person's report of an experience of pain should be respected, according to the International Association for the Study of Pain. And I don't know about the clinicians who are watching this presentation, but for me as a, a physician works in the hospital, treats patients who are experiencing acute pain, often from injuries uh, that they've sustained prior to arrival, it really is most often the case, in my experience, that patients with addictive disorders, their experience of pain is not respected. Um, I think we've sort of slipped into a very stereotyped thinking about pain among people with addictive disorders that 
in one way is, is trying to prioritize their safety by limiting their exposure to medications that can be harmful to them. And I, I am completely on, on board with that. And though it obscures other really important aspects of the relationship between pain and addiction and limits our clinical effectiveness in terms of coming up with a multimodal uh, comprehensive plan that respects their experience of pain and helps them continue on their recovery journey. So again, you can see there I've highlighted that in, in red because that is a key takeaway that we should be respecting our patient's experience of pain. So when someone with an alcohol or substance use disorder tells you that they're in pain, please take them seriously and here's why. So patients with pain and addictive disorders have worse physical, psychiatric, and social functioning. Patients with pain and addictive disorders are more likely to relapse than those that have addictive disorders alone. They are more likely to experience accidental overdose and they are more likely to die by suicide. So all of those are, are I think, some of the worst things that can happen to our patients and when we're treating patients for addiction, if we're ignoring their pain, we're leaving them exposed to increased risk of these detrimental and potentially lethal outcomes. So you might be wondering, well, how common is this for, for pain and addiction to co-occur? These are, are very commonly co-occurring clinical entities. So between 43 and 73% of individuals with alcohol use disorder also have moderate to severe pain. We also believe that the prevalence of pain among patients in treatment for opioid use disorder may be as high as 36 to 62%, depending on which study you're looking at. And also nearly 60% of individuals with tobacco use disorder have chronic pain. So we're really missing a lot of this when we're, when we're treating our, our patients with addictive disorders. And you might be wondering to yourself, well, why? Why is chronic pain and addiction co-occurring among so many individuals? And it, it, we sort of alluded to some of this when we looked at these parallel definitions of pain and addiction. But just delving a little further, right, negative reinforcement processes are involved in um, the development of, of addiction, right? So negative reinforcement, just going back to um, what you may have learned before about operant conditioning, is that negative refers to the idea that we're taking something away, and reinforcement means that whatever we're doing is increasing the likelihood of a behavior happening again. So with negative reinforcement, we're actually taking away, temporarily removing an aversive condition. So we're providing some, temporarily, uh, some temporary relief of pain with alcohol or substances. And when we do that, it, um, that temporary relief increases the likelihood that a person will drink alcohol or use opioids or another substance again and again. And over time, that leads to addiction. Um, genetics are really important. We actually think that between 40 and 70 percent of our 
risk of developing an addiction is genetic, it's um, difficult. It's not like there's one gene. There are actually many genes that contribute to this. But interestingly, there are actually some genes that overlap between um, a specific pain type or phenotype that we'll talk about, nosoplastic pain and certain addictive disorders. Also environmental factors, life experiences that we alluded to when we talked about the definitions of pain and addiction, and our neurobiology, which we'll develop more extensively in subsequent slides. So in terms of the neurobiological overlap between pain and addiction, some of you may be aware that we have really this, uh, what we call the, the brain disease model of addiction that focuses on what are these underlying brain mechanisms occurring in addiction. Maybe less familiar to some in our audience is that there's actually a separate silo of pain research where um, for decades now we've, we've studied uh, what are the things that are going on in the brain and spinal cord that are related to how pain can transition from acute to chronic, how is it that pain, physical pain, can be experienced in the absence of actual or threatened tissue damage. And um, very intriguingly to me as a clinician and scientist is, is where these things intersect. So very briefly, some of the ways are, we always talk about dysfunctional reward system in the development of addiction. What's, I think, a lot less known among clinicians is that reward system dysfunction occurs uh, as we transition. Many uh, studies have, have shown that there is a, a decline in our uh, uh, reward system function during this transition from acute to chronic pain and that this uh, reward system dysfunction may actually be important in um, pain chronification. Our endogenous opioid system is very important to um, um, both chronic pain and, and addiction. And then there are brain structures and circuits that are shared between addiction and pain. So our anterior cingulate cortex, our insula, these are um, important, very intriguingly, both for uh, chronic pain and for um, conscious urges to take drugs or, or drug craving. Um, the central nucleus of the amygdala is very important for our withdrawal negative affect stage of the brain disease model of addiction and it's also directly tied into our um, ability to uh, what we call descending modulation or ability for parts of our, our brain um, and brain stem to actually shut off pain signals before they rise to the level of conscious awareness. So dysfunction there is, is related to both addiction and um, pain sensitization in the central nervous system. And then uh, what we, an emerging important picture is that, okay, well, if all these things are, are lining up in the central nervous system, chronic pain and addiction are likely overlapping in how they're impacting behavior among people who have both. And that's what I call a double hit hypothesis. So 
Let's talk a little bit about pain sensitization in the central nervous system and alcohol and substance use. So alcohol and substance use can contribute to CNS pain sensitization. That's also sometimes called central sensitization in the literature and the neural substrates of central sensitization overlap with those of the withdrawal negative affect stage of addiction and other stages of addiction. Um, but the assessment of central sensitization is a challenge in clinical settings. And so what are we to do? How do we know how much of our patient's pain experience is related to this or is not? Um, one thing that, that we have done for the first time here at OSU Addiction Medicine is to take something called the American College of Rheumatology Fibromyalgia Survey and this is a, a survey originally developed to assist with um, the diagnosis and, and study of fibromyalgia and over time has been recognized as a surrogate measure for central sensitization. Um, the, the higher a person scores on this instrument, the um, more likely it is that central nervous system mechanisms are an important driver of their pain experience. And previously, even though lots of uh, particularly animal research, but also some human studies had shown that central nervous system pain processes were uh, involved in, in addiction, there wasn't an easy way of studying it outside of a laboratory setting. So we were able to use this easy to administer survey in a clinical setting. We've actually done this repeatedly now in, in five different survey-based studies and um, had some, some interesting findings. So here's a, a figure. That, so you'll see the man there. That's actually called the Michigan body map. So uh, being at, at OSU, uh, I'm sure maybe so, some, some, some of you are ready to turn off this lecture right now, just knowing that this was developed at the University of Michigan. Uh, but it, it's an incredibly useful tool. What you see here is an illustration from our first paper. And um, the figure there is the Michigan body map, which is a part of this American College of Rheumatology Fibromyalgia survey. And people who responded to our, our survey in our addiction treatment center at OSU, which is called Talbot Hall, um, they were able to respond to a survey indicating to us where they were experiencing body pain. The more widespread a person's pain is, the less likely it is that it's related to a bunch of peripheral causes and more likely that it's related to a central process. That doesn't mean that 100% of the time that's the case and there is another half of the survey that helps to tease that apart. Um, but yeah, so 141 individuals with opioid use disorder who presented to OSU uh, our addiction facility, Talbot Hall, responded to this survey, and this is the distribution of pain that you can see there. So over 100 out of the 141 people had lower back pain, but there was really widespread pain common in the sample. And the more widespread the pain is, the more likely it is that there are central nervous system processes at play. So we wanted to not only apply the American College of Rheumatology Fibromyalgia survey criteria, but we actually wanted to see for the first time how central nervous system pain sensitization might be related to clinically impactful aspects of opioid use disorder 
as a health condition. So we came up with some original items that were um, based on existing theory, but they were new questions. So um, we're asking to what degree uh, do you agree or disagree with the following statements? And one was, pain is a major reason why I've kept using opioids. Another was, I find myself needing more and more opioids to control my pain. Uh, third was, I have put off getting treatment for opioid use disorder because I'm afraid my pain will be worse when I stop. And then finally, I'm worried pain will cause me to relapse in the future. So what we're representing here is um, maintenance of opioid use disorder, escalation of opioid use disorder, uh, treatment delay, and in the age of illicitly manufactured fentanyl with over 100,000 people dying of uh, accidental overdose a year, a single day's delay it can be deadly, right? So this treatment delay based on pain which is something we should be really interested in. And then um, fear of pain-precipitated relapse happening to them. So these are people in a treatment center who have pain and opioid use disorder. Prior research has identified pain as a reason why people overlap, uh, uh, relapse. Well, is it possible that central sensitization um, may be involved in this relationship between chronic pain and relapse among people with opioid use disorder? So that's, that's sort of our, our reasoning for asking these questions. And what you can see in, in this is, is that these questions were robustly related to how people performed on this American College of Rheumatology Fibromyalgia survey. So the higher their score, the more likely it was that um, a central process, a central nervous system process was driving their pain experience and also more likely that they uh, agreed or strongly agreed with statements about maintenance, escalation, treatment delay, and relapse. So this is the first evidence here that we have that central nervous system pain amplification is related to these clinically impactful features of opioid use disorder. And so like a, a reaction that we got to this was, okay, you know, what about other addictive disorders? Um, and we'll get to that in, in subsequent slides. First here though, this is another figure from this paper. You can see how cleanly um, this American College of Rheumatology Fibromyalgia sorted people. So what we see here is uh, the people who scored 12 or less or the people who scored 13 or higher. This cut point of 13 or higher is our cut point for um, whether or not somebody met criteria for fibromyalgia based on the 2011 criteria. Um, and, and these folks who scored in the range that's consistent with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia clearly uh, responded differently to these questions about pain being a reason why they continued using opioids, why they had escalated their opioid use over time, why they had put off getting treatment for their opioid use disorder, and that they had feared relapsing because of pain. Fibromyalgia being um, the most well-studied nosoplastic pain condition. We'll talk about nosoplastic pain in subsequent slides. So, uh, like I mentioned, a reaction to this paper was, okay, opioid use disorder, what about other addictive disorders? So we went ahead and did a follow-up study, again at Talbot Hall, OSU's Addiction Treatment Center, where we replicated this among individuals with alcohol use disorder. And what we found there was that 
the higher people scored on the American College of Rheumatology Fibromyalgia survey, they exhibited uh, greater agreement with pain as a reason for the onset, maintenance, escalation, and relapse of alcohol use disorder, and also said that they had put off getting treatment for alcohol use disorder because they were afraid that their pain would be worse when they stopped drinking. And what we know about alcohol as an analgesic is that you have to drink at what we would consider to be a binge drinking level to achieve analgesia with alcohol. And so people who are regularly drinking to alleviate pain, that means that they're also regularly drinking at a binge drinking level or at a level that we consider to be very high risk for alcohol use disorder and just for their health in general. So this, for our clinicians who are watching this, screening your patients who you know have pain for problematic alcohol use is very important. Um, this is similar to the figure that we saw previously among our participants with opioid use disorder. It's pretty remarkable how similar the distribution of pain is with lower back pain being the most commonly reported pain among our participants with pain and alcohol use disorder. But there's also just a wide degree of, of uh, um, you know, pain widespreadedness. And again, the more widespread, the more physically distributed a person's pain, the more likely it is that the problem is actually in the central nervous system. Um, here we have percent agreement with pain as a reason for alcohol use disorder, onset, maintenance, escalation, treatment, delay, and relapse. And you can see it's pretty high, right? Like uh, approaching 50% for I find myself needing more and more alcohol to control my pain. That would be escalation of drinking because of pain. And then look at that, over 40% of our people who came to us at OSU for treatment of their alcohol use disorder told us that they were worried that pain would cause them to relapse or start drinking again in the future. And um, these figures here, this is about health-related quality of life. So our folks with alcohol use disorder, um, the greater uh, the degree of central sensitization of, of pain, the worse their health-related quality of life was. And this was true for their general health-related quality of life, their mental health-related quality of life, their health-related quality of life related to their pain and their vitality or energy level. And uh, so we were talking about earlier, people who have pain and addictive disorders have worse functional outcomes across a, a, a wide variety of, of functional outcomes. Well, this is showing us that at least the quality of life aspect of their function is related potentially to central nervous system mechanisms of pain. And that tells us something that may eventually be useful in the treatment of comorbid pain and addiction. So um, this says manuscript currently under review, but actually since submitting these slides, it has been accepted. And for those of you who are interested in looking at this, the, it's the uh, proof preprint proof is available at the website of the Journal of Pain. But so we uh, studied pain-motivated drinking and alcohol use disorder. So we know it's related to all these other important self-reported outcomes, but what about like how often you're actually drinking to alleviate your pain? Is central sensitization related to that actual drinking behavior? And to do this, we had to develop a new scale, which I call the pain-motivated drinking scale and um, did a full psychometric analysis to make sure that um, 
you know, this is a, a the, the measurement properties of this scale are appropriate for the uh, analysis that we did. Uh, but then I conducted a, a multiple hierarchical linear regression analysis just to see if this fibromyalgia survey was associated with how often people drank to control their pain after controlling for important things like age, gender, race, ethnicity, the number of alcohol use disorder criteria present, you know, so basically how severe was their alcohol use disorder, uh, depression, anxiety, and then even pain severity, right? So like, um, people with central sensitization may experience more severe pain. So we wanted to tease that apart. Like, is this the mechanism or is this uh, just the fact that they're feeling worse than others in the sample? And what I found was is that the uh, greater central sensitization or, or the higher people scored on the fibromyalgia survey, uh, the more often they were reporting that they drank to alleviate their pain. And you can see in table three there in the uh, lower left, that's our, our hierarchical regression model. Each one of those models that you see adds in a new variable. And every time we add in a new variable, that new variable has to account for pain-motivated drinking that hasn't already been accounted for by variables that we added in before. So like you have to, you have to be more influential of a variable. Each time we add in a variable, that new variable has to be, uh, has to add additional explanatory value to the model. Otherwise, it, it uh, will not show a significant change there. And, and what we see is, is that in model six, we uh, have added in pain severity, and that was a significant jump in explaining how often people drank because of pain. But even after accounting, for all of these other things, age, gender, race, ethnicity, mental health, alcohol use disorder severity, and pain severity, our measure of central sensitization increased the explanatory value of, of the model. So we were using central sensitization to, pre, uh, to uh, uh, you know, predict pain-motivated drinking above and beyond all previously loaded variables, including pain severity. So that tells us that there's something special you know, this provides first evidence of this uh, being especially relevant to drinking behavior among people with chronic pain and alcohol use disorder. So why does all this matter, you know? And the reason why this might matter is that a pain mechanism might eventually be used to inform treatment approach. Pain that is predominantly related to central sensitization is unlikely to respond to peripherally directed interventions like surgeries, injections, and may be worsened by opioid analgesics. So if we know that somebody's pain is, is likely related to a central nervous system mechanism already outside of the addiction literature, just in the, the pain literature, we would, um, we would want to have a comprehensive pain plan that addressed central mechanisms and didn't only do a surgery on on every single um, hurt body part, right? Because if you're if you're having pain in multiple locations, um, you would you would want to make sure that central mechanisms involved in that widespread pain were addressed. Um, also, there are some things that we can do to help folks who have pain that's related to central nervous system pain amplification. Um, 
So non-pharmacological treatments are a first step for this kind of pain. We want to have a trustful doctor-patient relationship and acknowledge the validity of symptoms. I mentioned over and over we need to respect our patient's pain and not dismiss them. And then that's the first step in building trust because they are in real misery and it's important to um, show up for them. In terms of communication, you know, we can communicate these uh, neurophysiological mechanisms, but we want to use simple terminology and things that are not alienating or um, make people feel dumb because this we're talking about their experience and, and in order for them to have ownership of that and feel some agency and doing whatever it is that's going to help with their pain, they need to be able to express it themselves. So teaching them about it, making sure that they understand by asking them probing questions and they can tell you, they can explain to you back what's going on. Um, explaining the treatment strategies, setting expectations, uh, promoting self-management and like this internal locus of control. You know, you can do this, right? There are things that you can do right now to have the life that you want, to have a better life. And that means a lot of times continuing or getting back into life participation like work, physical activity, social activities. And we can encourage uh, exercise, diet, sleep hygiene, stress reduction, all of these things are associated with improved pain experience and outcomes for people with pain that's related to central nervous system pain amplification. Also, physical therapy and even some alternative and complementary treatments may have benefit for folks with this kind of pain, regardless of whether they have addictive disorders or not. Um, but again, these things are, 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 are often overlooked for our patients with addictive disorders and that's would be uh, beneficial as part of a comprehensive plan. Another non-pharmacological approach are these digital therapeutics and the one that I really like is Pain Guide that was developed where I trained in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Michigan at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center. This is a free resource that people can access and today start doing things that will help with their pain. Then psychiatric and psychological therapies, we know that cognitive behavioral approaches, acceptance and commitment-based therapies, uh, treatment of mental health comorbidities, these can all have um, improved people's pain just because these things are, are related. Feeling pain all the time makes you depressed and anxious, right? And then depression and anxiety worsen experience of pain. So these things are intimately connected. Then there are certain medications that can be helpful for uh, pain that's related to central nervous system processes, so tricyclic antidepressants, SNRIs, gabapentinoids. Um, you know, a lot of times people think about our NSAIDs and, and simple analgesics, but those typically have little effect on, on pain that's related to central nervous system processes. And we want to avoid opioids. Uh, to the extent that is possible here. Um, there are important considerations though, right? Like so our, our tricyclic antidepressants can have uh, QT prolongation. So if you have a patient who has opioid use disorder and they are seen at a methadone clinic, you probably want to exercise some caution there, right? Um, and gabapentinoids, uh, some of you may be aware that um, you know, uh, gabapentin, pregabalin, these medications, some people do engage in misuse of, of these medications and um, there have been 
some uh, epidemiological studies where they have looked at toxicology reports among people who have died of opioid overdose and, and seen that um, gabapentin is uh, sometimes found among people who have died of opioid overdose. There's limited research in um, the anesthesiology literature about gabapentin possibly potentiating respiratory depressing effects of opioids. That said, I, I still, in, among many of my patients, find that gabapentin has a useful role, but it's just case by case in terms of determining risk versus benefit. As I mentioned, untreated pain among people with addictive disorders associated with a wide variety of bad outcomes, including some that are lethal. So it's a case-by-case -case determination of what's in the patient's best interest, partnering with them on a plan that makes sense for where they are. Um, in terms of assessment and treatment of addiction, I like to use this three-step approach that is, uh, you can learn more about this from the curbsiders internal medicine podcast. Um, some uh, colleagues and, and mentors of mine uh, developed this in a um, really helpful way to organize this information. So step one is screening. You want to use a validated screener and we'll talk about how simple that really can be even in a busy primary care setting. Step two is uh, assessment. We want to talk about quantity and frequency of, of alcohol and substance use and evaluate for potential substance use disorder based on our DSM-5 criteria. And then step three, we really want to evaluate, and we'll talk about this RIP-TEAR framework, which um, was also developed by uh, friends and colleagues of mine, and I think is one of the most useful ways of uh, presenting this information. So I'm grateful for their permission to share that with you today and then to develop a treatment or referral plan. So step one, using a validated screener, that is really as simple as asking two questions. So question one is, how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medicine for non-medical reasons? And uh, so I, like, for example, use a medication for the feeling or experience that it caused as opposed to um, effect that it's approved for. And then for alcohol, a good one question screener is how many times in the past year have you had five or more drinks in a day if the uh, patient was uh, assigned male at birth or four or more drinks in a day if the patient was assigned uh, female at, at birth. So, you know, adding two questions to your evaluation is, is doable and high impact thing that you can do to help your patients through appropriate evaluation. So step two, we want to assess. So quantity and frequency, these are really important questions. How often do you use alcohol or substances? How much do you use? When did you last use? When did you first use substances? The first, I've organized these basically based on their importance to me in my clinical setting because I'm treating patients in the hospital for withdrawal. And so I really need to know how often, how much, when was the last time, because that's going to you know, and influence my withdrawal management. First use is very important though, you know, you, um, you want to know how established of an issue is this. And then uh, we also want to apply our DSM-5 criteria. There are 11 use disorder criteria and for folks who are 
um, not primarily practicing addiction treatment or behavioral health. Sometimes people tell me like, geez, 11 is a lot to remember. And, you know, I'm, I'm the same way. We have to remember so many things. It's helpful to me to have some way of organizing this information so that I can keep it all in my head. And if you organize it using this 3C uh, method, you can really divide these up into craving, loss of control, and consequences. And even if you don't remember all 11 in the moment, if you keep craving, loss of control, and consequences in your head, you will be able to apply these DSM-5 criteria appropriately. So for craving, we've got craving, um, tolerance, so are they needing more and more of the alcohol or substance to achieve the same effect? Um, and then withdrawal, withdrawal, uh, we're, I think as, especially as, as physicians or, or nurse practitioners, PAs, we're used, nurses, we're used to thinking about physical withdrawal symptoms and those are more associated with things like benzodiazepine or alcohol or opioid withdrawal. It's important to know that actually withdrawal is universal in addiction and it manifests differently. So even something like um, uh, tobacco or cocaine, they're not gonna be um, having seizures or, or, or vomiting, but they, they'll often experience these emotional and motivational symptoms of withdrawal. We actually think those are more potent in causing people to return to use. So it's important not to minimize or dismiss those things. They're gonna be feeling sad and anxious and crawling out of their skin, regardless of what it is. Even gambling, people withdraw from gambling. Um, loss of control, uh, unsuccessful attempts to cut back, increased time spent, consequences. This can come in a wide variety of uh, aspects, but really if it's hurting them in some way and they're continuing to do it even though they acknowledge that it's hurting them um, or, or could be reasonably assumed to understand that, then that's qualifying there for consequences. Um, this rip-tear framework, I love this so much. Um, great mnemonic. So I, I, one thing I really like about it is the very first letter is risks of current use. And we're so focused in, through the history of, of addiction. We've been so focused on behavioral change. We've really neglected thinking about um, what are the highest impact things, like what, what's hurting my patient the most about this and uh, what are their goals? And a lot of times, maybe they're not ready for a big change in stopping using alcohol or substances, but they're really concerned about how they're uh, at risk of, of some of these horrible outcomes like infections or overdose. And are, there may be ways that we can partner with them to make sure that they stay as safe and healthy as possible until they're ready for recovery. Um, so starting to think about risks of their current use uh, when did it start? What's their pattern of use? Have they had prior treatment episodes? That's very useful for helping them plan for the future. Um, the effects, you know, a lot of times we're, we're naturally focused on the negative effects of substance use, but if we ignore what is it about this that may be still doing something for you, then we've missed an opportunity to have an important conversation with our patients about substances and sometimes um, leaning into that side of the conversation will help people put things into perspective and actually help them quit. Um, abstinence, have there been periods of time when they've been away from it? That's really important to acknowledge and affirm 
and ask them, well, what worked then? You know, because those are things that have worked before. They may help again. Or you can say, well, what happened towards the end of that? And you'll learn about a barrier or a relapse trigger that you need to help them plan around. Um, and then return to use. What can help prevent them? What, what barriers do they foresee for themselves? So that's our, our rip tear evaluation. And then uh, we want to come up with a treatment and referral plan. This is, uh, a, a lot of this is case by case, right? So medications, we have um, FDA approved medications for opioid use disorder, for alcohol use disorder. There are emerging, um, you know, uh, in, the, in the literature, there are other medications that do not yet have approval, but have mixed or emerging or, or early evidence of, of possible efficacy. And we're doing more and more research about medications all the time. Um, we want to make sure that we have a multimodal pain management plan, which we talked about, some components of what that might look like, for, particularly for folks who have our uh, central sensitization is an important part of their pain experience. Mutual aid, I think many people have heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Some people are unaware that there actually have been some studies uh, of these. It's a complex intervention. It's hard to study. And even though it's a complex intervention and hard to study, there are studies showing efficacy for alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous approach. We also have SMART Recovery, which I'm very fond of. It stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training. And this is a nice one uh, for folks who maybe have tried Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and um, maybe uh, you know, are looking for something a little different. And it's, it's good because it's, it's based on cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, other kinds of uh, counseling, but people can use it themselves. And I, I like that quite a bit. Uh, psychosocial treatments, there's a whole range of that. Everything from residential treatment where people go and, and live for, for weeks or months uh, to focus on recovery and get specific treatment to outpatient group counseling, individual counseling. And there's a whole system of evaluating that that we won't get into today called the ACM levels of care, but that I encourage you to follow up and look into. Um, you know, our medications for opioid use disorder include buprenorphine, methadone, and then IM naltrexone, also sometimes called Vivitrol. So buprenorphine is our, our partial um, uopioid agonist medication. It's commonly formulated along with naloxone, which is uh, sort of a chemical cousin to naltrexone, but not the same agent. And buprenorphine, uh, as a, an opioid, can um, have some helpful analgesic effects. And there is also the, the, uh, some literature that suggests that because it's a, a partial agonist, it may be more beneficial in, in some ways than uh, our full agonist opioids. Um, one is, is that there's a lot less risk associated with respiratory depression unless it's combined with another agent that can facilitate that, like if people are, are drinking heavily or using benzodiazepines, other opioids. But even, even in that situation, um, it seems to have a better safety profile than other full agonist opioids for sure. Methadone is a medication for opioid use disorder that can only be prescribed in the setting of a federally qualified opioid treatment program. So buprenorphine, that's one that if you're a practitioner, outpatient uh, provider, 
that, that you can provide. Methadone for opioid use disorder, they have to go to a clinic, uh, you know, usually six days a week for the first 90 days. Regulations vary based on, on state uh, regulations in addition to federal regulations, so there may be some variability based on where you're practicing. Um, but, you know, it can be helpful uh, for analgesia and as a treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, naltrexone, we'll, we'll talk about at the very end during the Q&A, there is some early literature on low-dose naltrexone for pain that's related to central nervous system uh, pain amplification. We really don't know yet what it does for this at the doses that we provide for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder, but I think a, an area of, of uh, interesting inquiry. Um, for alcohol use disorder, we can use oral or intramuscular naltrexone. We also have acamprosate and disulfiram. Um, naltrexone and acamprosate, they don't make a person sick if they have a slip up with alcohol. Naltrexone helps by um, uncoupling this link between alcohol and, and reward. And Camprol, uh, we think, may actually be more helpful for folks who are drinking because they're coping with negative emotions. And it, it may actually also be helpful for people too, once they uh, are in recovery, if they're having maybe some executive dysfunction that's contributing to relapse. Although for those folks, it can sometimes be difficult to take this medicine because you have to take it three times a day. Disulfiram, also known as antabuse, that's the one that makes you sick if you have a slip up with alcohol. This one is really important that they're engaged in a structured program, that they have someone who can help make sure that they're taking it every day. Um, yeah, so, and, and like I said, this treatment and referral plan for somebody who has an addictive disorder and pain should include a multimodal pain management plan, which we've previously discussed, in addition to these evidence-based treatments for addiction. And with that, that's the end of my presentation. The bibliography for this talk is available upon request. Um, unfortunately, it wouldn't fit on the slides. But thank you very much for your attention. It's been wonderful to be with you today. Thank you so much, Trent. Um, that was really helpful. And I think it is really interesting what you've been studying with the concept of central sensitization and um, how that plays into addiction and all of the overlap and and. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. But I do have some questions about this central sensitization. I don't know that a lot of us are familiar with that term. Uh, is it synonymous with fibromyalgia? So not synonymous with fibromyalgia. Um, you know, uh, our literature around central sensitization, we first started looking at this as a process that was specific to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord and uh, increased synaptic uh, efficacy between our primary and secondary nociceptive afferents. And it's sort of expanded beyond that, you know, to thinking about uh, how our, our uh, at like the um, brain and, and spinal cord level or uh, brain and, and uh, brainstem level, we're actually able to reach down and shut the signal off before it rises to the level of consciousness. Um, we do think that central mechanisms are really important in fibromyalgia and are, are, uh, uh, that's sort of uh, evidenced by the fact that our fibromyalgia survey criteria are so uh, robustly connected to what's going on in the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are some other conditions that feature central sensitization? Yeah, so um, 
We actually have a recently developed chronic overlapping pain condition screener also developed by our, our friends at the uh, Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center at the University of Michigan that actually evaluates 10 different conditions that we think are related to central sensitization and um, frequently co-occur. And mm -hmm. what's really interesting about that is that uh, um, we're, we're we're better understanding the individual conditions by considering them together, by evaluating them together. But yeah, there, there are many conditions that we think uh, central sensitization is an important contributing factor. Um, and it, it's important to acknowledge that it can actually be present among people who have pain from another cause, right? So there are pain conditions that are not due or primarily related to central sensitization, but because the pain from that condition is so intense and occurs over a long period of time, it can actually change the way the central nervous system processes pain information to amplify pain. So they end up having a peripheral source of pain, like a, a, a neuropathy or even like a, uh, you can have an inflammatory arthritis or something that's clearly not primarily related to central nervous system processes. Mm -hmm. but because it hurts so bad for so long, it can actually cause uh, changes in how their central nervous system processes as pain and they end up with central sensitization too, complicating the treatment quite mm -hmm. a bit. Okay, that is really interesting. Um, you know, I know you mentioned that there's some medications that are under investigation to treat these issues like chronic pain and addiction. And I noticed that also naltrexone is used for both alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder. And, uh, you know, as you probably know, there's emerging research about use of low-dose naltrexone in fibromyalgia to treat pain. So is that something you know, is that something when you do treat somebody with um, a substance use disorder with naltrexone, are we starting to see any benefit from the pain standpoint too? So I was delighted when I found that this was a question that you had asked me today because mm -hmm. it's something that I'm very interested in studying and I have a grant under consideration where I might be able to start to tease some of this apart. Mm -hmm. There's very little evidence to support or, or dispute the role of naltrexone for central nervous system uh, pain amplification among people with addictive disorders. We do have uh, the combine study. There was a, a secondary analysis of this combine study, which is a big study around medications for alcohol use disorder. And if you like buried in like table notes, it looks like there may have been a, a, a possible medication effect. <laughs> but we're I, this is something we need to figure out because. We need to take our patients who have addictive disorders and pain seriously. We need a um, treatment plan that features medications and 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 multimodal approach that respects their experience. And I hope that one day we have medications that we know can help. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so much more to discuss. Uh, I, I could, I think you could probably do a lecture just on the self-management and the non, uh, you know, the behavioral and the non-medication management piece. But unfortunately, we're all out of time today. Um, thank you so much for coming on the program. For our audience, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Trent? So if there's one key takeaway for this talk, I've said it repeatedly, please take your patients seriously when they tell you that you ha they have pain, especially if they also have a comorbid addictive disorder, because we know that untreated pain among people with addictive disorders can lead to devastating outcomes. And um, this is an important way that we can help our patients together.
Thank you so much for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu. Join us again next week with my guest, Dr. Indra Bull and Ajay Valakati to learn about new innovations in heart failure. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.